It's Guild Ball Tonight, your independent source for Guild Ball news, information, and conversation. Episode number one, January 6th, 2014. All right, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Phil, joined tonight by Bill. And this is Bill. How's it going? Pretty good. All right, this week we're going to cover some Guild Ball news items. We'll talk team building as we start working our way through the rules. Then we'll get to some more personal thoughts about the game in Act 3. So... Let's go ahead and get started now. This is what we're going to call episode one of uh, Guild Ball tonight. And while you may have while you may have heard me expound upon myself in the the beta episode last time out, you may not yet know Bill. So I figured we'd give him a chance to to just say hello and uh, pick up his own uh, train of thought. Hey, and, and I have to say, I. I hope that most of the people listening don't know me, because that means we have a whole bunch of new listeners, at least one. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's the goal. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, no, this is Bill. Uh, it's it's. Thank you very much for uh, having me join you on here. It's great to be joining you on Guild Ball tonight. Oh, it's an honor, sir. And I'm uh, I'm actually excited to start digging in and really talking about Guild Ball and talking about this game. It's uh, I think it's got a great bright future and. As we, you know, see the end of the line on the Kickstarter and really jump into uh, sort of where the game is going, it's, it's uh, I see a long run ahead of us. Well, I hope so. I hope that I hope that this game just goes uh, just goes off like a rocket. So let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, jump in and start uh, start with some some news since the since the last time any of us talked guild ball and um probably the the biggest item that's come down since that would be that we now have the version 1.5 rules and version 1.3 cards in our hands now these should be the final installments of those items leading into the release so we can expect that they will be very similar to, if not identical in content, to what we're going to be seeing in the release. Now, Bill, have you had a chance to uh, to really dig into those yet? Dig into them? Probably not as much as I would like. I, I, I am a little sad to say I haven't gotten the one three cards on the table yet. However, um, I have dug into the one five rules quite a bit. Right. And I gotta say, I personally the the way the language has been cleaned up from the one three and one four rules was very nice. A lot of the standardization of the language, some of the initial diagrams mm-hmm. that are in the one five rules look great. Mm-hmm. I have to laugh. Ratty is, yeah. You know, I, I see the in the in the opening um, opening of the one five rule book that mentions a big thanks to Ratty and. Uh, Ratty is a old Malifaux guy who actually did a lot of stuff to help out weird miniatures, mm. and uh, I, I see his touches here and there on some clarification, and especially in some of the diagrams. Sure, well, that's good. Now, the um, I have managed to play one game with the the one point three cards. We did a butchers versus masons um, last week, and. I will say I do like the I do like the one point three changes. They they really cleaned up a lot of the a lot of the place movement rules. They they simplified not only the the mechanics on the place movements, but they 
they they really simplified the the plays and traits that used those sorts of moves and um it really did have a positive effect on the the pace of game around those items it also appears that and i still i still i still probably should get clarification on this it does appear that the entirely within rule has vanished probably for the better i never liked that um for for people who didn't realize what they had done is initially they had been measuring um, from closest point to closest point on a base, which is sort of the the war games convention. You measure from the front of your unit's base to the front of the target unit's base. And as long as they touch, you're considered in range. Now, at one point, they had changed the rules pertaining to kicking that the target had to be entirely within range. That's like front of your base to back of the opposite base. And um, that felt odd simply because it was, it's, it's just a very unconventional approach. You know, I can't think of another game off the top of my head that uses that interpretation of measurement. And so I can say I've seen some on the, on the skirmish side. So when right. we look at, like, um, War Machine and Hordes, yeah. they use some measurements which are entirely within. You know, um, the, I think the, the terms in that game and in Malifaux are within and then completely within. Mm, okay. But I did notice that the completely within has been taken out of the 1-5 right. rules, which I agree is a nice touch because, you know what, especially for smaller games like this, I don't think there's a huge need for both of those measurements. Right. Leave it within, keep it simple. If any part of the base is within the, the distance, you're good to go and you move on. Right, and I think in, in addition to simplification, I think this was also, to a certain extent, a pace decision, because I know that when entirely within was the was the rule, there were times when that would force an extra activation mm-hmm. in order to score a goal, and not only does that mean, you know, potentially another turn required for the, the the scoring team to get within range but um you know the way things go being being out just that little bit might mean that you never get that scoring chance off so it just you know potentially led to a, a lot more midfield play and and stretched the game out a little bit and i know that one of the things that was that was heavily considered in this rules pass was just ways that they could improve the, the the pace of the game in terms of um, end-to-end duration. You know, I think that the pace of the game in in individual player activation time has been pretty good for a while, but the the total number of activations to conclude a game, I think, is one of the things that they were wanting to to reduce somewhat. And so I think that that was, that was some of that as well. I I could see that. I know towards the end of the last couple of games that uh, my buddy John and I got to play, it really came down to the bulk of the game was played before the first, first goal. Mm -hmm. And then once that first goal was scored, that momentum picked up really quick. And the next couple of goals were scored really quick. Well, I wonder, I wonder, and, and I think this is something we're going to talk about how much the, the early, mid, and late length of, of games have to do with the the mentality people bring into it. Because I know that 
we tend to to get early goals because hmm. goals are a priority for those of us who come from the from the uh, sort of blood bowl background <laughs> right right whereas clobbering people is is more of a mid game tactic although um that's starting to work against me, especially playing against the butchers. Once the butcher player figured out how to play the butchers, I have got to adapt and do so very quickly. But we'll get in more into that later, I think. Yeah, I think we'll come back to that, I think, in Act yeah. Act 3. Yeah, most likely. Now, let me ask you. You played with some of the 1-3 cards. Yes. And uh, you said masons and butchers. Right. Did you find... And, and I ask this because one of my other locals, Ben, who's very excited for the game looked at the 1.2 cards and then moved on to the 1.3 cards specifically for the butchers. Mm -hmm. And he felt overall, now see I'm speaking for Ben here, but he felt that the team was a little powered down. Not nerfed, but a little not quite as brutal as they were. Now he couldn't give me specifics. It was more of a general feeling before he put them on the board again. But just sort of little places where the plays laid out where the damage and knockdowns and mm -hmm. you know things like that did you find that in your games um yeah i think that there's a few small adjustments down i think boar lost attack um i think uh they they changed the mechanics on some of the plays but i think that was not so much a a power consideration. I think that it was just part of the pass that they did on the play activation mechanics. Okay. And so I think that there are just a lot of plays that now activate differently than they did in 1.2. And I think that's just because they were trying to more consistently apply the, um, the three different types of play activations, which they, which is also another thing that they really clarified in 1.5. That was, that was a great, um, help for all of us. Um, now that they've got the the play activation system really hammered out and into a shape that I feel like they're they're happy with, at least happy enough to to write a mm -hmm. a more lucid um, description of that, um, you could see that that some plays that were triggering um, maybe not in the most intuitive way in one point one and one point two. Uh, just got changed around, so it may it may seem like that was a way to to address their their potency, but I I don't think that that's so much the case. I think that the especially having played against the butchers, they are going to beat you down. <laughs> I mean, there's no way around that. I mean, boar is still a nightmare. Um, boiler is still sneakily knocking players out um ox is still doing ox's thing and they're they're still they're still a a really good team and i think i think the butchers are going to be a team with a lot of advantage in the in the early parts of the uh, of of everyone's getting into the game because their gameplay is so straightforward and so yeah. effective. Um, whereas a team like the the Masons or, I mean, heaven forbid, a team like the Alchemists, you really need to 
sort of come to grips with their synergies. You need to, you need to exploit the, the advantages that they have in sort of board placement and moving the ball around where, as with the butchers, once you figure out how to use their wrecking balls, you're in really good shape. And that's not to say that they lack depth because there's a subtle play to, to the butchers in their own synergies and how to use their, the buffs that they pass around between ox and brisket and things like that. So, I mean, there is depth, depth to them, but you, you talk about the butchers, but the biggest area I see that is, is very direct play. But not the easiest to figure out right away was in the fishermen. Yes. Um, when yes. when my buddy John figured out that he's still making attacks, but his attacks are not to do damage or necessarily knock me down. It's to take the ball and then bounce off mm-hmm. my guy so he right. can bounce through a field. Oh no, absolutely! And I think that's that's one of the one of the really cool mechanics in this game is when you do realize that a lot of times you're making an attack not to do any damage. I mean, that's right. something that, you know, when I've played the Masons, you know, it's it's pretty much a stock play for me that Flint is going to run downfield, um, move himself a few extra inches, make an attack on somebody just to move again, generate a momentum, and then take that open shot on goal. You know, that's... You know, that, that's Flint moving like 12, 14 inches and then shooting a goal in one activation with an attack that isn't an attack, you know, and that's right. that's very much sort of the, 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 the cool playbook mechanics that you can do. So it's, yeah, and, and figuring out things like that that aren't necessarily, I think, obvious, especially from a, a skirmish or a battle gamer's perspective I think is where the butchers are going to have that little advantage right at the start because they are they're just a bit more damage oriented but I think after everybody kind of gets their legs under them that every one of these teams just has something that they are so good at that as long as you play to that strength you are always going to be competitive and I think that 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 really speaks well to the to the the play testing that they've done to get a decent amount of balance and, and, um, and to the, the overall role. design of the game. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, they really played so truly to the flavor, right. to the flavor of each of the individual teams. Right. Well, and that, and one of the things that I think players have to realize with this game, and it's it's definitely a tactical tip if you wanted to uh, to start a uh, a board on the wall for these is. <laughs> Play your team. Don't do not try to do something different. If you want to do something different, play a different team. Right. Because every one of these teams is so good at one part of the game. And what's funny is they all feel overpowered in that one part of the game. You know, the fishermen feel ridiculously overpowered at moving and scoring. The butchers feel ridiculously overpowered at damage. Um the the synergies on the alchemist team feel completely overpowered but they're not as good at everything else 
And since everybody has that one thing they're really good at, and every one of those is a phase of the game, it just you becomes can, a matter of of analyzing and using your strength. Right. You can play to your strengths. So there's a couple other um, topics. I say other. There was one big topic of news right at Christmas. Mm-hmm. That uh, So that was since the last podcast, right before Christmas, on the 21st, where the latest... Uh, um, update came out so so i wanted to get your feedback mm-hmm. what did you think of marbles with the santa hat <laughs> i uh i don't uh i i don't know i don't know where to put marbles with the santa hat. you know marbles was marbles is one of those figures that i think a lot of people were really looking forward to and i think kind of hoping that he would be doing something silly because he is a monkey after all. Yeah. But I guess he actually turned out to be a baboon, which is a, uh, I don't know where they, I don't think they're, are they an ape? They don't have tails. Anyway. No, I, yeah, I'm not sure, but I, I gotta say, I, the Santa hat was nice and a nice little touch for Christmas, but <laughs> I really like the way the animals have come out and he falls right into the rest mm-hmm. uh, that we've seen all the way through. I, I think they've definitely come a long way since doing Salt and Princess initially mm-hmm. to the later animals. Uh, just not just with detail, but in the posing. And I mean, he's kind of an intimidating uh, baboon there. Well, yeah, he looks he looks very mean, and he is he is a pretty mean little monkey. I mean, I've had him I've had him hold boar down for three or four turns, and that's an achievement. So, um, yeah, I mean, if if you're gonna have a badass monkey, you want <laughs> you want a badass monkey. <laughs> Yeah, but I think overall the the whole mascot aspect of the teams has always been one of the most fun little oh. you know throw-ins that this game has. You know, just that every team is taking the field with their little critter. You know, that's that's just a it's just a great little idea that they you know pulled out, and it's uh, it's to the to their credit, I think. So along with that news, we did see uh, pictures of the bags. So bags and bags and bags and bags oh, and bags of bottles. That brought back memories, believe me. <laughs> well, I can imagine from you, right? Because you you got you were in the same situation at one point with a model showing up at the house that you had to sort out and ship out. Mm, yeah. So <laughs> I don't envy them, but it, I, I I gather they've got more than one guy doing the job, so it shouldn't be as bad. Yeah. Well, we hope there's at least two. <laughs> exactly. No, so. but that is exciting because, I mean, you know, that that's like the most real that the game has been yet. You know, we've seen a lot of renders. We've seen some some pre-production pieces. But to actually see inventory level stock sitting on a shelf, you know, that's, yeah. you know, that was a thousand miniatures. You know, that's that's serious. And, um, you know, and then you you. You know, I blew that picture up and I just started like checking off, you know, well, there's this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. And it really represented, you know, probably two thirds of the range just in that one shot. So, you know, they're close, you know, they, they, they keep saying that they're on target for the end of January and, and that does nothing but put, a, put a point to that, that they really are close. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm excited. It definitely, uh, Definitely bodes well, and then it's just down to shipping across the uh, the Atlantic, right? Yeah, we do have to wait a little bit longer than everybody else. And and then they ended with my team on the bottom. <laughs> so, 
and so I'm in this weird situation where of all the teams I have coming, um, I've decided um, I've decided to get one of the teams commission painted, mm-hmm. and I, and I may get more than one team commission, but I'm definitely getting one commission painted, and it's actually um, I've gotten a decent price for one of the team commission painted by one of the silver crystal brush winners oh, nice. from last year. And uh, so, you know, he's excited because they're new models, and he started to look at the models. So he's like, well, which, which team do you want me to paint? And I'm like, well, again, I really want my morticians to look the nicest. I think Obulus and some of the morticians are just amazing models from, a, uh, from an artist painting standpoint. Mm-hmm. But I also want to play them early. So if I send them out to get commission painted, they'll be one of the last teams I get to start <laughs> playing. Well, you can always use the... Uh... You can always use the paper yeah, dolls. The paper dolls. <laughs> yeah, actually, morticians. Morticians for me, I, I do like them, but they're actually from a from a gameplay standpoint. They're the ones that I kind of can't get my head around. You know, I kind of I see what they're supposed to do, mm-hmm. but it's not a. I think it might be too subtle of a team for me. <laughs> see, and that's the type of player I, I like those subtle control teams. Yeah. So. I'm excited to play them. I look at them and I see ways to use them on the table. I, I think the team that intimidates me most is the Alchemists, but that's simply because I'm not sure I really want four, uh, you know, four brass rings down on the table to represent clouds. <laughs> I so. know the, the, they said they they just seem like they're going to be a lot of fun. I mean, I just love the idea of Catalyst running in there and blowing up those rings. Yes, yes. So, much fun. so what did you think of the? What did you think of the rulebook news as far as the the format that they've decided to go with being a landscape rulebook? You know, I've I've I'm torn on that. I've mm-hmm. on the one hand, I've never had a landscape rulebook. Okay. So I see the thought process, right? It'll right. make it it's supposed to be easier to lay out on the table and and everything like that. I'm on the other hand, it just seems odd to me. Yeah, and I will you know? tell you, I have had many landscape rule books because for those of us who played Battletech back in the eighties, okay. the unit books, the, the technical readouts were all landscape. Now, Matt is absolutely right. That format does lay open on a table really well. You know, you open it, you lay it down pages don't flip closed it stays right where you want it to be so from the standpoint of a a rule book to use while playing the game it actually is a better format my question though is is this a game where we're going to be sitting around with the rule book open the whole time (laughs) because it seems like it might be a little simple of a game and there certainly aren't a lot of charts to look up. So, so I'll say this, and that's this brings a question I was going to ask you. Right. I have found that the biggest thing, and this has been going all the way back to the early sets of rules. Every time we sit down and play, the one consistent piece of feedback I've gotten from the group that I've play tested with has been, okay, who in the group is going to make a cheat sheet? Mm-hmm. Who's going to make a one-page laminated or half-a-page laminated cheat sheet so we don't have to 
flip through the book and we can really quickly go, what are the four things we can do with, with an influence? What are the three things we can do with a momentum, right? right? What's the sequence of a kick? When do we use, you know, a, a regular scatter versus a kick scatter? Mm-hmm. Those little basic things, um, if some, and, and I may be the one that ends up doing it, right? Now, if I do it, I would post it. If somebody makes a cheat sheet, I don't think you need a landscape book anymore because you have your cheat sheet. Let's call it a half page cheat sheet in your hand with all the quick references. And then you put little page things on there and anything that's a deeper question, you're going to flip to a regular rule book anyways. Right. Well, my, my, my thought on that is that number one, I will probably just memorize those things because it's, okay. you know, we're not talking about a large number of things. You know, this isn't to, to bring back <laughs> battle right. tech to mind. You know, this is not, you know, we don't have hit location tables. We don't have tables. Um, I think some of this is, you know, to to hear to hear them talk about the the thought process behind this book. I think some of it is, in addition to any uh, tabletop utility that they might have been shooting for. I think some of it is also a differentiator. You know, there was a there was a clear desire here and a clear goal that there that their choice of laying the rule book on its side like that would stand out on the shelf down at the, down at the, uh, Mm -hmm. the GameStop, you know, that it's going to be, it's going to be something that sticks out of the shelf. It's going to be something that draws your eye. It's going to something that's going to get attention. And then you combine that with, with good art and a cool slip cover. And, you know, odds are that, there will be people who pull this thing down and take a look at it who would have never even noticed it in another case. So I think that there's a certain cunning to this format. And it may be, it may just be more that than the other thing. Okay, that makes sense. But we'll see. Um, the, the, one, the one downside to a landscape rule book is that it is always a little bit harder to read when you're sitting in your armchair. <laughs> exactly. So, um, again, I think that this is a game that, uh, three or four matches in, you may not be consulting the rule book all that much anyway. So it is going to be a, it, it certainly sounds like it's going to be a cool thing to have on the shelf regardless. So, I think uh, I think we'll see how that turns out. Yeah. So I think that might be all the news. Yeah, sounds like it. So why don't we move on to uh, the process of learning said rules in said rulebook. <clears throat> now, one thing we want to do here is to... We want to talk about how to play this game because it, it is new to all of us. But I don't think that we have any real desire to sort of go page by page through the rule book and just talk about it from a you know front to back standpoint. But I think that what we do want to do is work our way through the game and just pick out those parts of the rules which are either um, need need some more discussion in terms of understanding some of the the idiosyncrasies or some of the interesting choices that underlie those rules. And and what we're going to talk about today 
is definitely in that interesting choices category. Because, you know, the first thing you need to do when you start playing Guild Ball is, of course, pick a team. So with Rulebook 1.5, we did get uh, team selection rules um, in, in print and clarified. And those rules take up about two paragraphs. Yeah, they're pretty straightforward. But they are turtles all the way down. Um, it is a deceptively simple <laughs> part of this game. And I and think I like that can that be said for so many parts of this game. <laughs> right. But so let's just let's just start with what the rules are. Okay, so to pick a team. Um, any A given team is going to be five players and a mascot. So the first step is going to be to select a captain. Once you've picked a player with the captain trait, so somebody like Ox or Shark, if you look at their card, you know, human, male, captain, attacking midfielder. Oh, he's a captain. Um, once you have selected your captain, you're going to choose the mascot who corresponds to that captain. So Ox is only ever going to play with Princess at this point now in the future we may have other mascots to choose from in the future we will definitely have other captains to choose from because i know that they have they have in fact revealed that there will be alternate captains they've even shown concept art for the mortician's Mm -hmm. alternate captain and i actually have at some point i have a theory about that that we need to talk about one of these days (laughs) okay so just a prognostication so once you've got your captain, you've got your mascot, you now have four players left to choose. Now, those four players can be any four players as long as those four players are either in the same team as the captain or union players who are um, willing to play for that team. You know, the, each union player other than the captain and mascot for the union have a trait called selective, and that trait will then list three or four guilds that they're willing to play for. Now, you cannot repeat any players. Every player in the game is unique. However, just in the interest of making the game work, you can have the same player on the field for both teams. It sort of turns into a Mario and Luigi situation at that point. Right. (laughs) One is wearing a red hat, one is wearing a blue hat. But on your own roster, you only have uh, one of each given player. So that is a very simple system. It's not that easy. Um, no, and it leaves a lot of room for for a couple of things as we look down the road. Right. Initially, the only re- the only place we see some differences here is in the union. Um, we have union players who, you know, if you in, and they were careful with their wording. Um, you know, it says uh, all other models must be able to play for the same guild as right. the captain model. So it doesn't say they have to be in the same guild, and that's to allow things like the union, who then have the selective trait. Mm-hmm. But they also leave the room by talking about the uniqueness of each of the models to now advance these players in the storyline as we get into season two, three, and four. Right. Or provide alternate 
spins on the players, maybe not as an advancement, but just, you know, special edition players and things like that Mm -hmm. to work in that mercenary type style or in that, you know, um, uh, advancement type style. You may have, um, see, I'm I'm looking at snakeskin here in the Union, but you may have uh, uh, graves out of the morticians who has changed over time and picked up some different skills, you can only put him in once. Right. So if you had season one graves and season three graves, you can still only have one graves. Right. And odds are that that season three graves is not necessarily going to be a better player than season one graves. He's just going to be a different player than season one graves, which gets to one of the you know, I think one of the questions that is going to be um, eternally unanswered, but eternally frequently answered, is whether or not the Union players are better than, weaker than, or, or the roster players. Now, I will say that... Um, Initially, when when I was looking at the Union players, I wasn't sure how many of them I would actually replace my core team's players with. Which I think is a, a good thing in as much as it means that they are not unbalanced. However, I think that... On any given week, I might toss in a union player for a couple of reasons. Number one, variety. And I think that's one of the things that that this really gives you is the ability to do a lot of different things. But number two, those union players tend to be good at something specific. And that might not be something that your players are necessarily good at already, or it might be something that your players are good at already for the most part, but not every one of your players. So, you know, the union players are really going to give you the ability to close holes in your tactics or to add additional players who possess traits that you are particularly good at using. You know, if, if, and to that end, I have to wonder, um, I, th- I think the standout union player to me, and not so much, well, we'll get to why, the standout <laughs> union player to me is Avarice, specifically Avarice and Greed, because they come right. together. Right. And the fact that they play for all the guilds, mm-hmm. they play, you know, Avarice is, again, a perfectly viable backfield um, guard, if you will, uh, and he becomes two models, mm-hmm. suddenly gives you a numbers advantage on the field. It may not be a huge one, and you still have to worry about greed in, in how he plays overall, because he certainly does, isn't very sustainable. Mm-hmm. But being able to add that extra player onto the field, I can see a lot of, uh, a, a lot of players jumping in with him. Yeah, I was actually, before before we saw good stats on Avis and Greed, I was a little worried about them because of that. But I will say that the second Greed detaches, yeah, um, he becomes an easy target. 
And I think that the smart player can actually use that to their advantage to lay traps or to to put in distractions. Because Greed, I mean, he's got four hit points. He has no magic sponge points. So once he's gone, he's gone. So, you know, even Brisket thinks she can kill Greed, right? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so. Well, I, it's kind of funny. I looked at Greed more like a uh, souped up, um, the, the detached Greed, more like a souped up mascot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, I think that that is sort of what he is. So, um, it's it's an interesting combination because you know once he does detach, you get a little bit of an influence boost. You know, you basically get one point of extra influence to, to use. He is he's not a terribly great player, but he is he is good at what he does, and what he does is you know poison yeah, somebody at a, at a very important point in the game. Is you know what it comes that's, down to. You know, that's interesting because I didn't look at him. That that's actually inter- an interesting take because I certainly didn't didn't look big at the poison mm-hmm. so much as the fact that he's got a decent movement, he's got a great kick, and he's got where to go. Well, he's he's got a good kick score, but not a good kick distance. Yeah, only four. So he's he's a bit of a he's a bit of an odd mix in that regard. So yeah, I think I think greed is a. Avarice and Greed, I mean, they're they're very interesting players, but I don't see them as being unbalanced. And I think that that is a real, that's a real feat. Yes. To have been able to put in this guy that becomes two guys and not have him be um, an absolute go-to player. You know, I think that if, if you were going to go down the list of union players and say, which is the one that you almost can't pass up? I would I would put rage ahead of avarice and greed, and gutter that. might be. Depending on what team you're playing, gutter might um, edge them out as well. I mean, especially if you're playing against somebody with armor, gutter is gutter is devastating. Yep. So, but that's that's kind of what you know what we've just done here over the last couple of minutes. Where we've talked about that is kind of an example of why this. This is the game within the game, right? And picking that roster and going through all these players and saying, you know, not just the union players, but also think about the teams that have already expanded beyond six players, you know, with the um, well, that, the likes that, of Meat Hook and Tower. And, right. That was going to be the next thing I brought up is the fact that – so I know locally – all of my players uh, that, that we've looked at the game all look at this as here is the card set for the Masons. Here is the card set, right? The one file, we downloaded it. It's how things are being packaged. And with those card sets, you get a certain layout of, of players, right? I mean, you get, you get your captain, you get usually a midfielder, a winger or two, a mascot, and a big base guy. Mm-hmm. But the thing to remember is, I could conceivably field, depending on depending on which uh, um, you know which team I'm playing, I could conceivably field a team that had a captain and three large base models. I think there's, right? a, there's actually uh, a way to get four. Is there a way to get four? Yeah, with the with the morticians, okay, you can get gassed. Um, Casket, Everson Greed, and Fangtooth. Yep, that's, that's right. That's four I large base characters. Casket. Now, that wouldn't be a very good team. 
No, I mean no, I'm no, just no, gonna, no. I'm just going to say right away because once I once I um, once I was made aware of that possibility, I thought, well, that's interesting. What does that mean? And then I went and I looked at those four players together. It's not a good team, but it's it might be fun to play because um, it would be fun to play. It, and it's also important to notice there's no differentiation on how you can build your own team, especially as more characters get added. Oh, can you imagine like by season three, this is going to be agonizing. Right. Well, you know, and do I go with all strikers? Do I go with all midfielders? How do I do my yeah. mix? You I know. might go with all strikers. <laughs> See, and that that informs on how it's just me. <laughs> but yeah, and and so you know, and, and I think that one of the things that that doesn't seem to be true yet, and I hope it's not true at any point in the history of this game, is there doesn't seem to be the the cookie cutter team. Right, I don't think that there is a a set of six players that is simply going to dominate with no modifications the tournament scene. You know, I don't think that there is a team that's just going to be that good when you take these two union players and these four roster players and you're just always going to win because I think that there's just too much variation. The game is a little too fiddly. It's a little there's just too much randomness. And matchups matter so much. Yes. That I don't. Now, there might be some teams that are. That you can construct to be hard counters. You know, it may be that. You know, this team with this union player and this additional player is just a really bad day for the Masons. See, and, and while, while I want to agree with you, and while I hope that is the case. I don't feel like I have enough playing experience across all the teams yet Yeah, to be able to say that. And even all the players on all the teams. I mean, most of the additional players, I have not had the chance to put on the table and really see how they play. And the Union, I haven't had a chance because I've been looking at the Union as a standalone team, not mm-hmm. not as an add-in not team. Not as integrated. Yeah. yeah, and the thing is, I think that even even when you do... Even if you do put in hard counter stuff, like if you if you were playing against Masons, for instance, so you know, so you said, okay, well, I need the ability to to punch through armor, so I'm going to play butchers, and I'm going to add gutter, right? And I'm going to add, um, I think it's snakeskin. No, it must be. Oh, this is this is irrelevant. Anyway, so I'm going to add these two players. <laughs> And from the Union, and that's that's going to be a bad day for the Masons. You're not guaranteed that win because you've still got to play the game. Yep. You've still yep. got to deal with the other guy playing to his own strengths, even though you've even though you've maybe countered a couple of his strengths, he still has strengths above and beyond what you can counter. You know, you've countered his armor. Well, the Mason player still has more synergies than you. He still has better ball movement than you than you do. Um, you know, it's not, I just don't think that this is a game that is broken and that is very encouraging at this point. Yeah. And I don't think it's a game that's one on the list, right? There's a lot of games that either, I mean, a lot of the GW games, so much of those games are, are built around list building. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure this is the case. I think list building on this is going to be quick enough 
that you can get your list together. There's enough variety that even if you only own one team, you can swap some some players out. You can throw the union players in, do well, and then it's still down to playing it on the field. Yeah, I mean, personally, I really see list building in this game more as a a fun activity than as a tactical uh, edge seeking activity. Now. There will be an element in the, the gaming community that does do list building as a tactical activity. And they will gain in doing that a marginal advantage. Right. And that actually kind of gets to one of the one of the sort of sportsmanship or, or side angles to all of this that that I tend to think about a lot, and that is you know what how do you how do you put list building into your own sort of social contract with the players that you are playing with you know if if you bring the players to each match that you know will be the most effective players against the other person especially when the other person isn't approaching the game that way is there still is there still enough coin toss you know to see who win the game wins the game at the end of the day to for the game to still be fun even when somebody is trying to take that advantage or does the flexibility of roster building in this game mean that there that there is some mechanical advantage that can be gained and that it's going to be sort of up to groups to police themselves and either go all in on that mentality or um, take a step back and not do it in the interest of fun. Now, I don't think that you can get enough advantage out of roster building to ruin the game for the other person. But I, I think, think that there is, yeah, but I think that there is still, I think that there is, will still be selection choices that, that sort of put the boot in. So here's, I guess, I, here's, here's how I see this playing out. And, and maybe I'm naive about this, but if I take one of my locals, Ben, who's just going to pick up the butchers. I I know that Ben is going to show up with the butchers. I know that's what he has. He went out and he bought his first five, you know, five six models. He he made his first couple of purchases because he wasn't in the Kickstarter, and that's what he has to start out with. So I can see him showing up with the basic butcher team, right? And you know, I'll build my list and I'll swap a couple things around because I have a ton of models. And then as he goes along, I can see I can see him um, either looking online as some of the rules get published, right? I mean, all the cards will always be available is, is what Matt and Rich have said. Um, and maybe he'll look at Meat Hook and I can see him going, oh, wait a minute. I just had this idea where if I put Meat Hook in with the rest of my team and swap Meat Hook out for whoever, I have this other synergy. So mm-hmm. I can see Ben going out, buying Meat Hook, putting Meat Hook in, right, from the alternate alternate uh, additional players, showing up in, in surprise here's this new player I have that I'm playing today. And that'll go for three or four games. And then 
to counter Meat Hook's, you know, reach and scything blow, I can see one of my other players, Dixon or John or somebody going, okay, well now I'm going to run out and buy this other or put this other model in. And it sort of becomes that uh, that growing metagame of you just got the cool new toy. Right. So either I'm going to dip into my, my cache of toys or I'm going to go out and buy that new model and add it in. And that's where I can see the union models being added in over time is, you know, especially with that player who has one team to start loves the team, plays the crap out of that team, and then wants to do that one addition because, like you say, you know, they want to go pick up, um, I think I think she can play for, uh, let me just make sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so Gutter is a great example, right? If Ben starts finding himself playing against the Masons a lot and he knows, you know, he, he listens to this podcast and he hears <laughs> you talk about, oh man, Gutter is really good at reducing armor. Well, I can see him sort of sneakily going out and buying Gutter, painting her up, and then showing up one week. Right. And being like, ha ha, I have the new combo, and I'm going to do this. And everybody will be like, yeah, that's cute. Okay, so this week I'm not going to play the Masons. But, <laughs> right. you know, I, I'm just not sure there's enough, um, there's enough there to sway the balance. I think it's more going to be sort of the cool synergy. What's the, right. Who can look outside the box and figure out how to play some of these basic synergies, put them into play on the table in such a way that they swing the game to their favor. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing is, I think that there are limits to the arms race here. You know, I think that when, um, you know, probably about six models. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that's the thing is that, you know, the, the case of an arms race that, that is most poignant to me is what happened when, my local board gaming group decided that uh, to get back into magic after after oh, in, yeah. in you know five ten in some cases fifteen years away from the game uh, a few years ago when they released the first of the commander prepack decks we each just bought a prepack deck and we were just playing with those cards well then people started wanting to improve their their decks and then other people wanted to buy you know make construct their own unique decks and what happened is we went from a from a situation where everybody was basically playing with garbage to people spending a hundred dollars or more on a deck and having well-oiled machines in their hand right and that was an arms race that was nihilistic. Um, ultimately, what it resulted in is we no longer play Magic. And we all have a, a very expensive box of cardboard on the shelf. See, Because I, we I, took the fun out of the game. I just can't see... I just don't see Guild Ball, the way it's set up, contributing to that type of list building. I mean, right. Magic... To me, Magic is the quintessential... List building before the game right. influences the game. That's well, the in the things, difference, right? Yeah. Oh no, I was going to say that. That's the two big things on okay. Magic. Well, yeah, how and the, good the your deck is, and then the random on how quickly right. the card comes up. And the big difference, I think, is that Magic is not Magic deck building is not a zero sum game. Right. You can swap a card for another card and gain total value. I think that with Guild Ball list building. There is a zero-sum game. You swap in a player that's good at one thing, that player is not good at something else, and odds are he's replacing a player who was good at something else. You know, there isn't there isn't a player in any roster who is terrible. 
there are players who maybe have a higher or lower overall value. You know, you can't compare the captains in this. The captains are all yep. superior. But in terms of those four other players, you know, you may look at the butchers and say, well, you know, Shank doesn't have as many synergies, and I, I don't think I need his his movement abilities as much as I want Meat Hook's damage output, or as much as I want Gutter's armor reduction, or as much as I want Fang Tooth's area control, you know. But when you take Shank out to put in Fang Tooth, you've lost the ability to to get a sneaky goal in. You know, you've mm-hmm. lost you've lost a lot of movement potential. You know, Shank can get across the board better than most other players in his own roster. So, you know, there is a zero-sum game, I think, in in this list building. And that, I think, is why it's not going to be... It's not going to be exploitative because every change can be exploited. You know, when when your friend shows up with Gutter, there's something he's taken away that you can now take advantage of. So the, well, the honest then becomes on to you to adapt to his adaptation. Right. And I think some goes back to what we talked about before. Yes, you can put a four large base and a captain team down on the table. Mm-hmm. It's doable. May not be the best team ever, but you know what? Somebody might find that that weird synergy in that team, and it might click with that person, and suddenly it becomes devastating for a couple of mm-hmm. games. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, it, for me, this just goes back to sort of the strength. It's funny, because I think this also contributes a bit to possibly to the thing we'll talk about next, which is... Um, you know, skirmish versus sports games. I think this is one of those strengths from the skirmish game where having a limited number of models, you're really looking for synergy between that limited number of models. And you can't just keep throwing more things into the mix to get more combos. You're always sacrificing one combo to put another combo in. And it's which combo is stronger to your play style and which combo is stronger within the rules of the game. Sure. And like I said before, I think this is an eternal debate and it's an eternal question. <laughs> so we don't need to spend an eternity on it. So since you've already sort of laid the the segue there, let's go ahead and move into that question. Okay, so... That's so that pretty good. That was almost like professional podcasting. That was. That was almost <laughs> like we had planned that one, wasn't it? God, we're good. We are professionals, people. All right, so... So what we want to talk about next is, is biases. Mm-hmm. Now... I am a a long, long, long time sports ball gamer. I've been playing Blood Bowl since 1989. Um, Bill is a much more of a skirmish gamer. I don't really play a lot of skirmish games. The closest I get to a skirmish game is really Saga, and I don't think 32 miniatures really counts as a skirmish game. Yeah, I wouldn't put that in skirmish. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> now, I have always skirmish. wanted... I've always wanted to sort of be a skirmish gamer. You know, there's a lot of really nice skirmish games out right now. Just none of them have clicked locally. You know, I look at something like a Malifaux or an Infinity and I say, you know, I love those miniatures. I I love the idea of a game that you just have a handful of exquisite figures to play with. 
but just like I said, nothing has nothing has caught the has sort of caught the attention of my my local group. So I just haven't gotten deep down into that path. But you know, we do still have a a, a little bit of a, a blood bowl in our veins here. So you know, that's sort of still the the direction that I come to this game from. But you come the other direction, right? Now, you've also played, uh, like, you, you started with Blood Bowl, but haven't you, correct me if I'm wrong, because maybe I'm remembering wrong, but you've also played a lot of the new sports ball games, Dread Ball right. and Chaos Ball. And, and uh, I haven't played Chaos Ball. Ball. I have played Dread Ball. I have, <clears throat> I actually created Elf Ball, which was uh-huh. the, the game that Impact sells, although the game that I created as a, as a quick beer and pretzels game to sort of attach my figure line to so nobody could ever accuse me of um, only making figures for another game. Um, that game bears very little resemblance to what that game became, but it was certainly a game that, that some of us actually did play for a while. So while there are not a large number of sports games out there, um, those that there are do tend to have an intense and cult-like following. Oh, yeah. And I suspect Guild Ball is going to be one of those games as well. So so where these biases, I think, influence the, the way we approach the game, is, you know, what we were hinting at earlier. You know, I when I line up to play Guild Ball, my first and last thought is score a goal. Because... You know, where the the gaming background that I have uh, that I'm bringing into this, you know, when you're playing Blood Bowl, you never clear the field. You know, even the most, you know, mm-hmm. even the most poundiest of pounding teams still has to score a goal. And um, because Guild Ball is a synergy, it really is a synergy of, of the skirmish game and the and the sports game I have been found out because of that bias you know when we when we played the last game that we played where I was playing Masons and my counterpart was playing the Butchers you know he figured out the game before I did you know I had been winning games because I was scoring the goals but I hadn't figured out the game yet you know, he figured out the game first. He just said, right. I'm not even going to try to score a goal. I'm going to I'm going to get in your way when you're trying to get to the ball, but I'm just going to beat the tar out of the players you need to score with. You know, I'm going to take down Flint. I'm going to take down Mallet. I'm going to take down Honor. And then what are you going to do? And in that skirmish sort of bias, that, that to me sounds very much like the skirmish bias. Um, we ran into that where one of my locals is playing... A cl- uh, the, he's playing the fisherman. That's a team that just excels from that sports ball score goal mindset. Mm-hmm. And I was playing the Brewers, which excels from I'm just going to trundle down the field and knock you down as many times as I can. Yeah. Until there's no one left standing. Mm-hmm. And hopefully I'm somewhere close enough to make a goal. Until John adapted to actually focusing on scoring goals, he was having a hard time because nine times out of ten, I'm going to win the brawl in the center of the field. You know, the Brewers are going to win that because that's where their strength is. Oh, yeah. 
So, um, you know, now once he adapted, I was, I was wrecked, right? Then he could position far better than mm-hmm. I could, and it became a lot tougher. Well, and so that, that's, I think, is part of the question is, do you play to your bias, or do you accept that this is a game of two phases? You know, does a person like me who who is looking to score and who's always played strength and agility teams, I mean, do I just need to go all in on the fisherman and that's how I'm going to win this game? Or do I need to say, you know, this is a different animal. This is a different game and I need to learn how to play it the way it needs to be played. And that means playing both phases of the game. Now, ultimately in the long run, I think that is the answer. I think that, that someone who comes in with that bias has to be able to, to know when to when to score and when to fight, because even the fishermen have to fight, a mm-hmm. bit. and even the butchers have to score now and then. Well, and it's very tough, especially with the icy sponge. It's 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 incredibly tough to keep an entire team off the field. Right. That's it. it's easy to get so. people off the field, but it's hard to have them all off the field. Right. <laughs> You've got to get I through think, them all twice. <laughs> I, I, in, you know, I think. I mentioned this sort of when we were doing a little prep offline, and I really think that's one of the big strengths for Guild Ball is, one, you have both approaches, so it's going to pull both type of players, which excites me because it's going to make the overall meta of the game and how the game is viewed really interesting. It's not like... You know, when you look at, in, uh, for me, it's Malifaux and Relic Knights, but Malifaux, Infinity, and Relic Knights, if you have all three of those being played in the same area, you have these skirmish people that are trying to approach each of those games in sort of the same way, same tactics. Where Guild Ball is a game where it's just as likely that I show up, you know, I may go travel up to New York and sit down with a group of players in New York who are all Blood Bowl guys. And they're playing this purely from a, yeah, these are nice skirmish models and characters, but this is a more elaborate, free-form sports game, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm going to score my goals, and we're going to go, and it's quick. And the fact that we can all sit down and play that game and come at it from the different biases, I think, to me, is a very exciting, you know, it, it expands that whole sort of meta and taste for the game. Now... The other side of that is it's definitely going to influence initial strategies and how people approach the game. And that influence, I think, is going to take some some work for each of us to break our own bias, mm-hmm. to try to look, you know, outside of that. And, you know, I, th- I think that's a good thing, too. I've always been a fan of, quote unquote, war games where it's not all about killing. And that's exactly what Guild Ball is delivering here is great combos, incredible models, and it's not all about killing, even though I know from your standpoint, Phil, they all are carrying weapons. <laughs> yes, I know. That's still <laughs> I'm still trying to get over that. <laughs> but yeah, and I think that I think that one of the interesting things that's going to happen is that if there is a meta going into the game towards one or the other side that the person who breaks that mold first may well be seen as playing an overpowered strategy. And that that situation is going to be mirror images 
yes you know up and down communities because the you know the 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 places where the 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 pounded into the dirt skirmishers are more numerous the fishermen and and masons are just going to run away with those games and at the same time in the leagues where people are just concentrating on goals the the brute squads are going to are going to be un, unbeatable until there is adaptation See, the brute squads and i think that's where a lot of the finesse teams uh, because because finesse in a skirmish game is such a different animal than, as far as I'm aware, than finesse in a sports game, right? Finesse in a sports game is typically, uh, and, and I'm going to look to you to correct me if I'm wrong here, because I've only done, uh, done, you know, Blood Bowl on the, on the computer and the Xbox. But finesse in a sports game is usually about be fast score goals, you know, finesse almost in that fisherman for guild ball. And, you know, it's, it's kind of delicate. I may, I may not be able to take a hit hard mm-hmm. where finesse. Absolutely. Yeah. Finesse in a skirmish game. You may be able to take those hits with no problem. It's more about control and positioning and, and not positioning from how do I get to the goal quick, but how do I control four inches around me instead of two mm-hmm. inches? Well, and, and there is, and there is control. some of that. I mean, if you look at blood bowl, You've got, you know, the, the the first scenario you laid out in, you know, for a Skaven or an Elf player, you know, you're you're incredibly fast. You throw the ball around, and if the other guy isn't particularly good at getting in your way, you're just going to run up the score. But there is there is also slow finesse, and that mm-hmm. would be something like the Dwarf team, where every, your entire gameplay is about positioning and exploiting very small points of attack. I got to admit, I think you were the first person I have ever heard to refer to a dwarf as a finesse anything. <laughs> you need to play more Blood Bowl because if you don't play dwarfs with a little bit of finesse, you're just going to stand in the middle of the field the whole night. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but they um, – no. So, I mean, but that is – in both of those cases, finesse is the way you get downfield, the way you score. Right. So it is still the same thing. It's just done mechanically different. Whereas what you don't really find in in Blood Bowl or even in, in other games like Dread Bowl is you don't really find teams whose path to victory is simply slaughtering the other team. Now, back in second edition of Blood Bowl, which we were playing back in the 80s, there was some of that. But in the more modern incarnations of the game... It's just too hard to clear the field. See, and this is where I wonder about those, what I would call finesse control teams in Guild Ball. You know, when we look at the morticians and we look at the alchemists, uh, the morticians, who is really about, I'm going to let you play your game, but I'm going to make it really expensive Mm -hmm. for you to do whatever you're going to do. I'm going to take control of your models to play your models against you. And I'm going to steal your influence. I'm going to keep you from getting influence. Mm-hmm. And then the alchemists who are going to say, yeah, I know you're driving for that big open spot of the field over there. Have a cloud of fire. <laughs> right? Yeah, I know you want to make a shot, but let's just block your line of sight so you can't yeah. see the goal. Exactly. And, um, you know, and, and I think that's where the really different, that's much more of a skirmish mindset, right? Oh, you want to shoot that gun at me in, in infinity? I'm going to put up a big cloud of smoke here, or I'm going to move behind this terrain. Um, now, 
there brings in a whole different aspect. Now, I know I have not. In fact, I've, I've minimized terrain on the table. But how much terrain have you used in your playtest games at Guild Ball? To be honest, we have never put a single stick of terrain on the field. Um, no. Have you and that's just a... That's, I have read them. I, I, I did come into Guild Ball with a different anticipation of terrain when when you know based on the on the early kickstarter information i thought it was going to be a terrain heavy game you mm-hmm. know i thought we were going to be playing on city blocks or in crowded villages and i thought that it was going to look like a skirmish game but what's become apparent is that an excessive amount of terrain is going to bog the game down to almost to a standstill. And that's not that's not a unique thing to Guild Ball. I mean most most battle games really do sort of not break down with excessive terrain, but bog down with excessive terrain. Interesting. See, you know, I'm actually excited to see more terrain on the table. Mm-hmm. I, and I don't see it happening early. But right, you got to you got to kind of learn the game and stage. <laughs> right, but I absolutely see down the road a group of us going. You know what? Especially those of us coming from the from the skirmish side of the house, right? The Malifaux players and the and the uh, Relic Knights players, and I can see us going. Hey, let's play this in the town square. Let's play this out in the out out in a forested ruined area and something like that. In setting that up, not just in the open field, I think it'll make the game longer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure I will feel, it, having not played it yet, I'm not sure it'll feel like it's bogged down. It, it changes, so drastically changes how you play the game. Because right. now you can't just make a bunch of open shots. You know, you're going to have to deal with the bounces. But to me, that's kind of cool. Now I'm dealing with, with bounces, so I can do some much cooler cinematic plays. Well, and it it will change the... It will change the tactics of the game. And I think that terrain is going to favor some teams more than others. Um, I can see that. You know, I think that terrain is going to be something of a, a skill in, in Guild Ball, you know, picking how much terrain to use. And, and I mean, that's not something that can only be said of Guild Ball. I mean, that's a... It's always been a big point of discussion, I know, in the in the Flames of War community for mm-hmm. people who are playing that game, because there is a huge difference in the way that a game plays on a pool table versus a train table, if you understand the difference there. Um, and, you know, so the question of how much is too much and what factions are given an undue advantage from too much because what happens in a lot of these games is that certain forces or certain armies who have issues with range or issues with um, application of force over mm-hmm. over over space are have been pointed out or balanced around that deficiency. But when put into a high clutter situation, which maybe plays to their 
to the strengths that they do have, they are now a very cheap but very effective force. You know, right. when you when you do something like like in Flames of War, where you take an infantry company and you play it on that that you know super cluttered town square scenario versus a a wide open countryside you know they're able to to cross the table without without impediment without uh taking fire and then get into the the close range assaults that they're extremely good at and they it's a force multiplier so i think that in guild ball you may be looking at a similar situation where a team like the the fishermen, you know, they're that wide open field team. They want to be able to move the ball. They want to be ha- be able to have those long open passing lanes. Whereas another team, you know, the 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 morticians, or oh man, the alchemists in a crowded <laughs> oh lord, the, you know, in a crowded clump of terrain where they can just drop a uh, a cloud down. Yep, and all of a sudden it takes out the, the route to the goal. Yeah, you know we're, that's a force multiplier. So the you know I think that if you play with no terrain, you are you're upsetting balance in that you are giving an advantage to one team and taking an advantage away from another. And if you play with too much terrain. You're you're getting the mirror image of that imbalance, so I, I think that there will always be a, a a disadvantage to playing with no terrain. But the the trick is going to be sort of figuring out how much terrain to use. So I would not mind if somewhere down the road a um a tournament organizer didn't come up with a good uh, a good mechanic for laying out terrain, which maybe applied a point value to each type of terrain feature. That would be interesting. And, you know, a board has, you know, 12 points of terrain. And so, you know, a, a eight inch wall is one point. A house is three points. A, a woods is four points. You know, so whatever the... So what you end up with is, especially in a tournament situation, what you end up with is a a situation where the amount of terrain on the table is constrained to sort of fall into that middle between advantage fishermen and advantage alchemists. Right. And also with a system like that, what you also get is while maintaining variety and maintaining the ability to sort of set up tables with whatever terrain you happen to have lying around every table in that tournament is in balance. So you don't have individual mashups that were maybe decided more by the table than the skill. Yeah. Now, but you got to, you got to admit with me, the, the original claim from the early Kickstarter of the idea of playing guild ball and in, in kicking and passing the ball across gantries and walkways between the roofs of buildings, that, that's still got to sound cool to you. It does sound cool, <laughs> but the trick is... 
Making it playable. Making it playable. Now, you know, one of the nice things about the Guild Ball terrain rules is that they don't say this type of terrain feature is always this thing. Right. You know, you still have the ability sort of to say, all right, all these rooftops, we're going to kind of say they're the zero level, you know, and all these gantries and all these things, you know, they're, they're cover, but they're not obstacles. And so you could set up this sort of field in the sky and it would play fairly open. And if you had enough, you know, gantries and catwalks and boards laying between the roofs of the houses to provide ample um, ample options for movement, you could play on the roof of a city and still have a wide open fun game. So, I mean, there's, there's, there is a lot of flexibility there. Um, it's just, you know, it's all down to the trick of, of application of rules. And that's, and I think that's where smart tournament organizers are going to really ultimately make decisions that are going to filter down through even into the casual play of the game. Once those, once those conventions come into play and that's a lot of that is going to only come in time and with experience. So I think that brings us uh, through the podcast. Yeah, I think that's that's really about uh, that's all we need to cover this week. But it leaves us with plenty to talk about next time around. Absolutely. And uh, I'm definitely excited to uh, see where we're going next. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait. You know, we are in January. <laughs> wait, we're going to have models soon. Yes. <laughs> Anybody who's not excited about that, just pack oh, them up and send them to me. I can't wait to be doing <laughs> model reviews here on the podcast. That's going to be yeah. a good day. Oh, well, I've got my boiler. You know, I've got, you know, we can always talk about my one Guild Ball player. So I, I got to admit, I. I didn't get the boiler. I, I was thinking about it. I saw it come up, and at the time I went, nah, I'll go ahead and pick up the stuff later. I can wait. That was a mistake. Anytime you have that thought, kick yourself <laughs> and just buy the model anyways because you're going to regret it. I know. I know. I, you know, I bought it. I knew that it was essentially the same figure as what was going to come in the the team later. I just wanted to paint a guild ball player, right? Mm-hmm. But I am I am sort of regretting I passed up on the two resin only players and those were the Kickstarter crossovers that uh, Minx and Harry the Hat. Yep. Because I'm not a huge fan of resin. And so there is a part of me that is that is very um rueful that I that I didn't get those and I might I might down the road see if there isn't a way to to rectify that. I know I think I can still get Minx from the uh, the Guild Ball pre-order store, but I don't know and, about um, Harry the Hat. It, I don't know if Harry the Hat's going to be available on Guild Ball, but I do know once uh, Infamy comes out, he'll be available through the Infamy site. Yeah, I mean, they said that it's limited run, but we don't know how large that run is going to be. Yeah. So. So I did get Harry the hat because how can I pass up, you know, that amazing hat? It is. It is a fine hat. (laughs) It certainly is. So, all right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and say goodnight, everybody. So good night.
good night, and uh, we will see you next time. Knees up. Watch the knives. To join the conversation, comment on the show post at guildballtonight.com or email us at guildballtonight at gmail.com. Phil can also be heard on the Game Punting Podcast. Bill can also be heard on the Gamers Lounge Podcast. Check them out on iTunes. It is time once again for another installment of Ox's Poetry Corner. Tactics is easy. Carve them all into cutlets. Three goals? What is that? Alright, you'll know I'm recording when I start sounding serious.